Well, there was a little girl named Alice and she bought a parrot from the pet store. She'd saved her money to get this parrot and she went to the pet store and she bought it and she brought this parrot home. And you know, if you have a parrot, if you've ever had a parrot, the parrot's supposed to talk. But this parrot didn't talk. And so she goes back to the pet store and the pet store owner says, well, the parrot just needs a ladder. So she brings the ladder, puts it back in the cage and the parrot still didn't talk. And so she goes back to the pet store and he goes, well, the parrot needs a mirror. Obviously, go up and down, but he needs to, she needs to see whatever. We don't know the gender of the parrot, but the parrot needs to see. And so she gets the mirror and goes home and puts the mirror in the cage. And lo and behold, the parrot doesn't talk. She goes back to the pet store and the next day she gets a swing. And then the next day she gets a mini tree. And the next day she gets a shiny toy for the parrot, but still the parrot doesn't talk. And about a week later, the parrot died. And Alice was heartbroken. And so she goes back to the pet store and it was closed. And so she waits there and the owner of the store comes up and he said, well, did the parrot ever talk? And through the sobs and the pain, Alice said, well, yes. Right before the parrot died, he asked, does that pet store sell any food? See, that illustration was taken from this powerful book by C.J. Mahaney called The Cross-Centered Life. And he says this, Many good causes and activities may occupy a Christian's time and attention, but just as no amount of parrot cage amenities can make up for a lack of parrot food, nothing can replace the gospel in a Christian's life. Nothing. Nothing can replace the gospel in a Christian's life. Mahaney says, without it, our souls become like Alice's pet, starving in a crowded cage. That our souls could be starving. It could be filled with lots of other things. But if we don't understand and apply and have the gospel in our souls, we're starving in a crowded cage. That's the one thing we need to know. All the other things in life... They're not bad, some of them, but this is the one thing we need to know. It is important to ask honestly what we're currently building our lives around. If I were to ask you and take you to coffee, men one-on-one, and just to ask, what are you building your life around? Before we could ever talk of a cross-centered life, we need to know about this one thing, the gospel. So think about it for a moment. What is the most passionate thing in your life? What are you most passionate about? What is the main thing? What defines you? If people were to look at your life, they would say, this person equals X. Is it your career? Or a relationship you're in? How about your hobby? Your political affiliation? A fascination with the latest electronic gadgets or maybe your main thing is something that is clearly others centered that's good maybe it's ministry or your family maybe it's homeschooling or a cause like the pro-life movement good things all but not the one thing God says should be most important the matter of 
first important. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I want to remind you of the gospel, which I preached to you, for which I received it and passed on to you of first importance. The Bible tells us that while there are many different callings and many possible areas of service in the kingdom of God, one transcendent truth should define our lives. One simple truth should motivate our work, whether it be at Costco or in someone's house doing a remodel, one thing should define our life. And that is Jesus Christ died for our sins and he rose again. And so that's what Paul explains in this first seven verses of this letter to the Galatians. The Galatians is about the supernatural grace of God evident. It's proof. Paul is very good at argumentation and debating. If you're a debate teacher, I know we have some of those in there. This is your book because he logically goes through and talks about the supernatural grace of God evident in the spirit-filled life of a believer. And as Paul begins this letter, he begins it with an introduction, and introductions are important. They say that a comedian has 30 seconds to grab a crowd. And if you and I were going to give a speech, we would want somebody that knows us personally to give that introduction, or at least knows us well enough to talk about us comfortably in front of a crowd. Well, Paul is no comedian, but he knows his Savior, and he speaks of him very clearly in this introduction. What you're going to see in verse 1 is a person, the Apostle Paul, among people, verse 2, with a purpose, the gospel. Let's look at Paul. It says, Paul. We're introduced to Paul in Acts 9, where he becomes a persecutor of the church, and then he is transformed from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, and he becomes the most prolific writer of the New Testament. Thirteen letters we are given by Paul through the power of the Holy Spirit. And it says Paul is an apostle. He's one under authority and sent with authority. He is under the authority of someone and he is sent with that authority of someone. It would be like me talking about the Secretary of State or the Ambassador of the U.S. to China. They are under the president and they speak for the president. So Paul, an apostle, is under someone and he speaks for someone and... Paul tells us here who it is. He's not sent from men nor through man. Notice the, the change in word there, not sent from men. It wasn't a democracy. They didn't just vote, hey, we're sending Paul out, and it's not through man. It wasn't a dictatorship. Paul wasn't assigned from some man, but it was through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Paul is under Jesus Christ and God the Father, and he's sent with Jesus Christ and God the Father's authority. And it says it's God the Father who raised him from the dead in another letter, Romans. Verse 4 of chapter 1 tells us the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead so we could conclude logically that Paul is an apostle sent not from a democracy nor from a dictatorship, but from the divine Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But Paul's going to concentrate on Jesus Christ and God the Father. Notice here it says, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ. Immediately, implicitly, we're to say Jesus is not a mere man. If he didn't come through man or by men, Jesus then is not just a mere man. He's the God-man. 
He was a man for sure. He was born of a virgin. He had a human body. He had a human mind. He had human emotions. So much so that he can identify with every single person in this room. If you're troubled, Jesus can identify with you. If you're sorrowful, Jesus can identify with you. If you're joyful, Jesus can identify with you. If you're angry, Jesus can identify with you. If you're grieved, he can identify with you. If you're merciful or compassionate, Jesus can identify with you. He became a man so he could identify with us, but he was not just a mere man. He was God also. And in his words, he declared himself to be God. You say you are God, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man coming down in the clouds. His works displayed that he was God. He turned water into wine. He healed the blind. He healed the sick. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He performed many miracles that, that secured in people's minds, some of them, that what he said and what he did, he was also not just a man, but he was God. And he was also worshipped as a baby, Three wise men or a whole slew of wise men came to worship Jesus as a baby. And at the end of the life, he received worship and he did not turn it away. So when Paul says, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ, he means the God-man, Jesus. And we learn rather quickly that he both lived and died. It says, from Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him, Jesus, from the dead. Jesus died in the past And God raised him. He's living in the present. That is why when we sing he is risen and we cheer so appropriate for this Sunday, it's because he is risen. He is risen indeed. You taught that in Sunday school. And it's God the Father. God the Father. More on that in just a minute. And Paul says he's not only writing by himself, but he says and all the brothers who are with me. Paul was not just a person. He was a person among people, and he calls those people his family. And all the brothers or the brothers and sisters who are with me. And these are brothers, these are saints, but these weren't apostles. And they are believers, but they're not all blood relatives. But he calls it one holy family. And we don't always act like it, do we? One holy family. Wouldn't you think the world could just give the church some grace as much as they expect from it? You would, but they can't because the world doesn't understand grace because they don't understand the gospel. And that's what Paul wants to explain in this letter. And he says, all the brothers who are with me to the churches. See, there's one church, one invisible universal body of believers of Galatia. Because you will never have the universal church without local churches, ever. It is always and only a universal church seen in local churches. And so the universal church is visibly seen in the local churches, plural, in Galatia. Paul's not writing to elders. Paul's not writing to deacons. He is writing to the churches, which means he is writing this letter not just to the leaders of a church. He's writing it to all believers. And this is what he says. Paul started with what's most important. One person has said the gospel is not only the most important message in history. I love this. It is the only essential message of history. And as Mahaney said in his little book, sometimes the most obvious truths are the ones we need to be reminded of 
most, right? We can look at the cross like we look at the golden arches. The golden arches, the most popular marketing logo of all time. We see the golden arches and we go, oh yeah, there's a McDonald's. And we do the same with the cross. We can look at it and not even be moved by it. So we need to be reminded of when we see a cross, what does that mean to us? Paul doesn't want us to miss this. In fact, he won't even begin his letter until he explains it. He says, grace to you and grace to you and peace. Those are common terms of the day. Grace is the means of salvation. Peace is the results of salvation. But he adds to it from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That isn't typical of the day from God, our father. Therefore, every Jewish person listening to this says, I know he's talking about the God of the Old Testament. And Jesus Christ, the one who walked the earth and the gospels recorded. He says, notice what he says here. In verse one, he says, but through Jesus Christ and God, the father. God, the father exists. And he exists to how he exists, not how we want him to be. But look what he says in verse three. Grace to you and peace from God, our father. Our father. This is as much personal as it is theological. God is not some ethereal concept out there to be studied. God is a person with whom we are in relationship with. How's your relationship with God, the Father? Right? For my wife and I to be in relationships, a good relationship, we communicate with one another. We talk to each other. We listen to one another. How's our relationship with God? Are we in communication with our Father? Do we listen to Him in His Word? Do we speak to Him in prayer? Do we talk regularly with our Heavenly Father? He moves from the Father to our Father to show us this isn't just a concept. It's a relationship. And this familial language that He uses, I know can can have a wrong rub with some because I realize some of us have had unhealthy relationships with our earthly fathers and they didn't represent God well. Yet our father in heaven is the standard by which all fathers should be judged, not the other way around. It's not the other way around. My father wasn't good, ergo, therefore God is not good. No, God is good. This is how this earthly father should be. And so maybe today... For those of you who see and, and cringe when you see God our Father because of the, the lack of godliness in your Father, maybe we ought to start fresh. That's what Easter's about, right? That's why we have all these bunnies and eggs. It's to represent the spring into new life. Although we don't celebrate bunnies and eggs, we celebrate a cross. Maybe today you should get to know your heavenly Father. And then it says, and grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What's in a name? The Lord Jesus Christ. Is that just, you know, Paul couldn't, couldn't think of anything else. So he's just adding, oh, I'll just put Lord, maybe some Jesus in there. Or is he meaning to show us the Lord? He is the master, Jesus, whose name means Savior, Christ, Messiah. The Master, Savior, Messiah. 
Messiah, the Redeemer, the Warrior King, the one who would come to take his people back from the enemy. See, this is no wimpy Jewish hippie. Just didn't skip around Jerusalem in a dress. No, this is the warrior king who came to save a people and rule the world. The Lord Jesus Christ. And he says of this Lord Jesus Christ, he now gives you in two verses the gospel. John Calvin once wrote to one of his French refugees, to all those who love Christ and his gospel, this is what Calvin said. Without the gospel, everything is useless and in vain. Without the gospel, we are not Christians. Without the gospel, all riches, poverty, all wisdom, folly, strength, weakness, all justice of man is under the condemnation of God. But by the knowledge of the gospel, we are made children of God, brothers of Jesus Christ, fellow townsmen with the saints, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, heirs with God, with Jesus Christ, by whom the poor are made rich, the weak, strong, fools, wise, sinners justified, the desolate are comforted, the doubting are sure, slaves are free. The gospel is the word of life. Amen. What is the gospel? Here's the gospel. Jesus Christ, who gave himself. He gave himself. He, Jesus Christ, gave himself. Let's concentrate on that. Jesus Christ, who? Because at times, humans tried to thwart, since the beginning of time, really, if you remember back to Genesis, humans have tried to thwart God's plan. But Luke 4 tells us he escaped from their midst. Jesus Christ, on Good Friday, some 2,000 years ago, went to the cross on his own volition. He was not drugged there by Roman soldiers. Pilate could not have authority over him. He even looked at him and said, do you not know I have authority over you? And he said, you don't have authority over me. I lay my life down and... I will raise it again. In Matthew 26, he could have called down a legion, 12 legions of angels at his disposal. Would have made for a good Hollywood show, but that's not what he did. And in Luke 9.51, it said he, he set his face to Jerusalem. Jesus Christ set his face to Jerusalem because he knew he was going to the cross. And it's not because the bagels were better there. It's because the bread of life was broken for us. You see, he, Jesus, in his own volition, gave. And in his giving, he is the, fulfills the priestly duty. He gave. Just like the priest would give the sacrifice on the altar, Jesus, the priest, gave himself. He is not only the priest, he is the provision. And so if you're reading through the Old Testament, you see in Leviticus 1 through 7, all these provisions, and then 8 through 10, these, these, these commands to the priest, Jesus fulfills both. He gave himself. He gave himself. Himself. As Heath prayed early, 
It's a substitutionary atonement. He gave himself, the language is common in the Old Testament, of giving a sacrifice. But why? Why would a guy do this? Why would a God-man do this? Look at the next phrase. He gave himself for our sins. For our sins. Did Paul, wait a second. Paul didn't crucify him. And he's made it plural. <laughs> he's, he said our, he's using a, a, a plural term for himself and others. And he said he gave himself for our sins. This shows us Paul's perspective on sin. And it shows us our perspective on sin. Everybody in this room, our sin killed Jesus. My sin killed Jesus. And there's a movie out called The Passion of the Christ. And the only scene in there that the the director wanted his part in it is his hands nailing Jesus to the cross to send a message. Now, I just wish he would live out that belief. But his point was... I put Jesus on the cross. You put Jesus on the cross. You put Jesus on the cross. All of us put Jesus on the cross. He, on his own volition, gave as a priest himself as the provision for our sins. He is the substitutionary atonement to cover the wrath of God. His blood was spilt Because of me and you. Easter is still celebrated as a major holiday around the globe, says one commentator. But the truth of Jesus' gory crucifixion, and that's what it is. I remember when that movie came out, they invited some local, in Texas, they invited some local pastors to the radio station and we were to talk about this movie and there, were, there was a rabbi and there were some people from other denominations. And there, were, there was me sitting among these other believers and the rabbi. And the rabbi was just, well, that's, that, that, that movie is just so gruesome. Yeah. That's what crucifixion is. It's brutal. So he's right. Gory crucifixion leads to the glorious resurrection. It's often obscured by the cartoon bunny and the gaudy displays of springtime fashion. Traditions of cute bunnies and marshmallowy creatures, colored eggs, and little girls in pink dresses are harmless enough. There's nothing cute and cuddly by the fact that we killed God. It's not cute. It's not cuddly. It's not a joke. It's serious. He gave himself. Why? For our sins. But he doesn't stop there. Look at the next phrase. To deliver us from the present evil age 
This is the beauty. So we have Good Friday, which if you think about it, is good only because Jesus died for our transgressions and we wait one day to make us think and fast and pray. And then we come to Sunday. He rose for our justification. He died for our transgressions. He rises for our justification. He gave himself for our sins to rescue us. He's the Messiah. He's the warrior king. He came to save a people. To rescue us from something. This present evil age. That is what Paul describes the age post-resurrection of Jesus after his ascension until his second coming, which means it includes you and I. Christ is born. That's Christmas. Lives a perfect life. He dies on the cross. Rises again. That's Easter. And then he gives his commission to his disciples and then he ascends into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God and Colossians says, that's where our focus should be. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He says, seek him where he sits at the right hand of God. So from then until he comes, this present age, Paul doesn't say this pleasant age full of fun, full of beautiful mountains, full of joy, although... There are beautiful mountains, and it is can be joyful. He calls it evil. Jesus came to deliver us from our own sin and this present evil age. Not immediately, because there are others who need to hear this message. There are others who need to hear. There is a God who exists, and he desires a relationship with you, but your sin separates yourself from this God and sin cannot be paid for by good works. Paying the price for sin, Jesus died and rose again. That's the gospel. He gave himself for our sins to rescue us. To have the good news, you've got to have the bad news. And the bad news is Jesus. The bad news is we are sinners against a holy God. The good news is Jesus Christ died on the cross for those sin. And what's even better is we're not left there. He freed us. To rescue us, if you go and rescue someone from behind enemy lines and you go and get them, they are free. They are no longer enslaved to that particular enemy. And that's us. We are free. When you and I are rescued, we're free. Paul will tell us, Galatians, by the way, is just a little acorn of the thought he'll expand on in Romans. And he tells us in Romans 6, we're dead to sin. Why are we dead to sin? Because Jesus died and rose again and we have died with him and we have risen with him and we're dead to it. We're free. We're free. If you're here today and you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a relationship with him, there is no sin that's enslaving you. None. You're dead to sin. But we live in this present evil age and he has immediately freed us, but not ultimately because others need to hear the news. And Jesus, like a good son, did it, next phrase, according to the will of our God and Father. He's the submissive son who always and only did what his father called him to do. He gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to to the will of our God and Father. It was God's plan to save us through Jesus before he even created the world. 
Ephesians 1 tells us, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ, in the heavenly places, who chose us in Him, Jesus, before the foundation of the world. It was His plan. So Jesus, the perfect Son, perfectly obedient, fulfills fulfills the Father's will. And thus Paul ends as rightly he should, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. And when you see that word, amen, you should say, true. (laughs) Because what you're saying is, it's true. If you noticed here in Galatians 4, this happened perfectly in history. Galatians 4.4, Paul's now describing this idea of Christ coming, and it says, but when the fullness of the time had come, God knew exactly when he was going to do it. And he says, God sent forth his son. It was planned by them. It was worked out by them. And Jesus came in obedience to his father's will. He sent forth his son, born under woman, born under the law. Why? To redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. And that is why we are called children of God. Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age, not immediately, but ultimately. That's our hope. According to the will of our God and Father. And that is why we give glory to him. All of our life, the ultimate reason for everything, whether you fish, whether you run, whether you cycle, whether you play golf, all to the glory of God. Do you drink orange juice to the glory of God? Do you do, or did you do, hopefully, unless you're filing an extension, did you do your income taxes to the glory of God? Do you serve and pack boxes to the glory of God? I know you do, with a big smile on your face. We do everything, as Paul says, to whom be the glory forever. However, There are many false gospels out there. Lots of them. Look at what Paul says in verse 6. I'm astonished. Paul does not use fluffy language here. I am astonished that you, believers, are so quickly deserting him. We see people deserting, literally walking away, saying, I've had enough of this. I'm walking away from it. You're deserting him. You're deserting this. Him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to, here are the false gospels, a different gospel. Not that there is another one, meaning it's not like I were to have a one can of Coke up here and then have another can of the same kind Coke up here. It's having a can of Coke versus Pepsi. Altogether different. Or you go to your favorite place for caffeinated beverages, and there is a there's one here, and then there's one here. One is is the real thing. It's rich. It's 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 hot. It tastes good. It tastes like Starbucks. And then there's everything else. That's what he's saying here. You're deserting. You're walking away from something that's altogether different. 
And there's not another one, but there's some who disturb you or trouble you so that false gospels, they're different and they're disturbing. For a true believer, when you hear a false gospel, it disturbs you. It makes your skin crawl. You say, no, that is not true. And they distort the gospel of Christ. They're different. They're not even close. They're disturbing and they're distortions of the truth. And you're thinking, well, what are some false gospels today? I'm glad you asked. (laughs) Uh, I've got six here. There are probably more. Uh, Six secular gospels and four religious gospels. All of them wrong. Ten is enough. First is psychology. If you just think about yourself more highly than you ought, Sounds weird. Psychology is a false gospel. The gospel is self-esteem. Just think, think of yourself better. Then you shall be better. Not true. Sociology. Government. The problem doesn't lie with me. It's just the society around me. You just need government to come in and build laws and rules and regulations. Then we'll be saved. No. Moralism. Well, the problem is all I've got to just... If, if people would just do good... No. How good do you have to be? God says perfect. How about asceticism? Well, if I've done bad, I'll just beat myself up about it. No. Well, then you combine all of those and you just get atheism. We don't need no God. I know what's best for me. Or hedonism, emotionalism. Oh, it's just religion and morals that have enslaved you. Just be free to do whatever you feel. Live life at whatever the cost. The sad thing is there's some good to psychology. There's some good to government. We do like good behavior. There is a God who exists. And to no amount of punishment you can inflict on yourself, you are not your own savior. It's good to have emotions. It's good to be full of joy. Amen? It's good to sing songs like we sing today. But those won't save. Only Jesus. And only a substitutionary atonement on the cross for my sin. But there are other false gospels in in the world. Let me just summarize it like this. All other world religions, I'm going to make a general statement. It's absolutely true. All other world religions are wrong. I am not arrogant. I'm not narrow-minded. I'm not... Beating the Bible, they're wrong. Because in and of themselves, at the very core, it's works-based. It depends on you. And they're wrong, they're false. Christian cults, those that bear the name Christ in the title, or the name of our great Old Testament God the Father in title, are wrong. They're works-based. They don't understand grace. Wrong. And what's even worse, there's liberalism. Those that want to kind of hold this up in reverence. Paul, he was really really mean. He didn't really write this. That was just pseudo-Paul. And Jesus, he really didn't really do those miracles. I mean... 
there's a logical scientific explanation for everything. I mean, it was just the winds that parted the Red Sea and there happened to be this land bridge. No. (laughs) There may have been a land bridge, but God moved those waters and rescued a people then as a picture for us today. And finally, there's that one that creeps into and can creep into every church, legalism. Seeking to obtain forgiveness from God or acceptance by God through obedience to God. And all of these, truth is mixed with error, just like Satan did some 2,000 years ago, or not 2,000 years ago, but a long time ago. Did God really say, surely you will not die? He mixed truth and error, and you get sin. False gospels that do not save. They are either Christ plus something, you need to Jesus and, that's what Paul's speaking specifically to in the book of Galatians, or Christ, but not, you know, it's, it's Christ for you, but not Christ for everything, or there's just really no need for Christ at all. Biblical Christianity and secularism and other world religions are not trying to solve different problems. They're trying to solve the same problems, but they go at it in a radically different way and only one is right. And so Paul says there in Galatians in verses 8 and 9, but if we, Paul and the other apostles or his brothers and sisters in Jesus or an angels from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let them be accursed. Paul repeats himself so that his statements would be more calculated than exaggerated. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone, be it an angel in heaven or man on earth, should his preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be Cursed. False gospels are different. False gospels are disturbing. False gospels are distortions of the truth. And most of all, false gospels are deadly. That's why Paul uses such violent language. They're deadly. Why is Paul all out of whack? Why should we be? Because the reputation of our Lord and Savior is at stake. If there is no sin, there's no need for a cross. Then there's no need for Jesus. If, if, if there is no God, then we do what we want. We have no explanation for why the world's gone wrong, i.e. sin. Then we don't need Jesus. So it's the reputation of cross of Christ and it's the destruction of souls. There are many people headed straight to hell because they've bought into the false gospel of whatever we just covered. They're going to hell and hell exists. And what's worse than a liberal preacher or a Christian cult or even another world religion is one who claims to know Jesus and says, well, I mean, really? Do we need the virgin burst? Does hell really exist? Is young guys my age flirting with the gospel? The gospel 
by definition, is good news. It's news. It's not concepts to be discussed. It's not an idea. Let's throw it around over a cup of coffee at your kitchen table. It's not what it is. It's news. It's to be declared. That's what happens every night at 5 and 9 for some and 10. And there's whole channels devoted to news. They're not, they're not doing anything. They're just declaring. Ours is the greatest news ever. And that's why Paul is so bent out of shape because there's too many false gospels going around. And so how do we apply this to ourselves? Well, I would say for any non-Christian listening online or anybody in this room that doesn't know Jesus or for some of us who know Jesus and are living like non-Christians, the gospel is absolutely true. The gospel is out of this world. It is life-saving. It is life-changing. And it is the only essential message of all history. It's not your career, your family, or your hobby. That's a search for significance. It's not money. It's not uh, a husband. It's not found in a home. That's your search for security. Only when our significance is found in God's glory and others' good are we truly free to work and not be married to our job to raise our kids without being focused on the family, to play softball or golf or fish and not trying to win in that trophy that we just didn't get when we were 14. And only when our security and our identity is found in God's glory and others' good, i.e. through the person of Jesus Christ, are we free to spend money without feeling guilty or to do those things that God has given us the freedom to do without being enslaved to the flesh. The irony, Patrick Morley says, of surrender, of submitting yourself to Jesus, King Jesus, is it doesn't lead to defeat, but victory. And he goes on to say, there is a God that some want, and there is a God who is. And the turning point in our lives will be when the God that you want becomes the God who is. And that God is God the Father who sent Jesus Christ, his son, to die on the cross your sin. That's good news and it's to be believed and it's the way in which we live. Amen. And if you're here today and you think, yes, I'm, I fall on the side of Paul and all the brothers who are with him. Let's just think about that. Paul was a man under and with authority. I ask you this question, believer, are you submitting to your authorities? Children, are you submitting to your parents? Wives, are you submitting to your husbands? Husbands, are you submitting to your authorities at work? Believers, are you submitting to the authorities at church? And Paul was a man with authority, and he held it with with truth and with grace. And so for those of us in positions of authority, are we leading like Christ led, sacrificially, sensitively? Paul was a man who lived in community. And so are we truly living in community, or are we just coming because it's convenient, it looks good, or are we really saying I'm free to do whatever I want, when I want, where I want to do it. That is, do you and I live in authentic relationships with one another? And Paul finally greeted his family with the truth of the gospel. Is that how we speak? Is our conversation consumed with the cross or other things? And are we boldly like Paul and clearly like Paul proclaiming this gospel to the world around us? Or do we shy away because we don't really believe that it's true or we don't really understand the hope that is stored up for us? 
You see, divinely appointed messengers communicate with divine authority the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. We too must communicate clearly and boldly this truth. Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of God to whom be the glory forever. Father, that's the gospel. It's not my message. It is yours. Help us to fully understand that your gospel doesn't just save us, but it sustains us. It strengthens us. It should be central to our life. Father, I pray for anyone in here who doesn't fully understand the gospel, who's never submitted to King Jesus, that they would. I pray for those who aren't here today who thought, you know, that's just a good little Christian ceremony they're going to, who are out on golf courses less than a mile from here, who have no concept of what it means to truly live, what it means to live for something bigger than themselves. I pray, Lord, in all seriousness, they would have the worst game of golf in their life. And they would ask why. Why is it they're not fulfilled in a par? Why is it they're not fulfilled going over moguls? Why is it they're not fulfilled, even those who are successful in their marriages, in their jobs, in their homes? I pray that you would make them miserable, not just to be miserable, but you would lead them to Jesus where they would find complete and heavenly joy. That it would be a joy inexpressible and full of glory. I pray for those who don't know. And I pray for those of us who do, that we would live free from sin, looking to the future where their age will no longer be evil. It will be pure. It will be undefiled. It will be imperishable. It will be unfading. And that you would empower us to live holy lives, joyful lives. And when trials and tribulations come, and we know they will, we would rest in the fact that you love us and you're working all things for good to those who are called by your name. Father, we thank you for the true meaning of Easter. It's in your son's risen and holy name that I pray.